Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 13 of Revelation, where we've been considering the beast, the false prophet, and how the world will be deceived into following them. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. Some people have taken this verse and applied it to all sorts of things. Some use the statement on the sword as a prohibition against believers serving in the military. Some have taken this portion as having to do with leading people into captivity and applying it to our penal system, you know, our, our system of imprisonment. And they're saying this is forbidding that and, and saying that it's wrong to lock people up or to execute them. But none of these things is what this verse is saying. This is simply a statement designed to give assurance to the beleaguered saints of that era that there is a day coming when justice is going to be served. A day when Antichrist, the one who who has led this world into his own evil bondage, the one who has caused with his power and authority to take life, will finally be dealt with by God. The day when he'll be killed physically, by the sword that Christ will bring against him. The day when he'll be cast into bondage himself in the eternal pit where he and his angels will burn for eternity. It's simply a statement of warning given to the beast and to those who follow him, a statement of hope being given to those who are suffering at his hands. It's both. He's warning him and his followers, but he's giving encouragement to Jesus' followers. Stand fast. Some of you might be taken into captivity. Some of you might be thrown into prison. Some of you will be killed by the sword. But be patient and don't lose heart. Stand fast despite these terrible things because God's day of reckoning is coming. It's coming. And this is the hope that you and I can hold on to. I hope it's the hope that you are holding on to because sometimes we're facing in our world today some seemingly unfair, just like the story I shared with you a moment ago, some seemingly unfair, some seemingly unjust kinds of things in this world at the hands of very sinful men and women. But there's a day coming. We're promised that. There is a day coming when all of this will be made right. Amen? Amen. Don't lose heart. Well, look on at verse 11. I'm going to get a little bit further than I thought we would today. So let's move into this. He says in verse one, uh, verse 11, he says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Hmm. John tells us here in this verse that he now sees another. If you like to underline your Bibles, you want to mark that, another. He sees another beast. This is not the same beast, Antichrist. We're, we know that because of this designation. It's a different one. It's, it's not the Antichrist that he's been describing to us, but it's a different player in this unfolding end-time drama. And, and literally, another in the Greek implies something different yet of similar in kind. Different yet similar in kind. Remember, we had that when, when we, it was being used with angels. Do you remember that? It says in another angel meaning that it's similar in kind to one that's been there, but it's not quite the same. So what John is telling us is what he's seeing is that this beast that he now sees and that he's now going to describe to us is a different beast than the first one. It's not Antichrist, yet the implication is that in a lot of ways, this beast is going to be of the same kind, the same ilk 
as we would often say. This beast will be similar in nature, similar in character, and similar in purpose. And yet this will be a distinctly different figure as John goes now on to tell us about him. Look at the next part of that verse. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And so, whereas John told us in verse 1 that he saw the first beast rising, what? Out of the sea, right? Now he tells us that he sees this beast coming out of the earth. And clearly John is giving us this this description in order to differentiate this beast from the first one. And although the first beast may be similar in many ways to the, this one might be similar to the first beast, he's also different. It's not the same beast. And at the same time, the one characteristic that's shared by both of these beasts, that they both have in common, is that they are both something to be regarded as vicious and dangerous. Vicious and dangerous. I say that because the Greek word for beast that's used here in both cases is a word that literally translates as dangerous beast. Dangerous beast. And when it's used in a metaphorical sense as it's being used here, it literally implies a brutal, bestial man who is savage and ferocious. A brutal, bestial man who is savage and ferocious. So despite the differences that exist between these two satanic figures, John wants us to know that in this sense, they're identical. They're the same. Both of them are are something to be wary of and to be feared because both of them are dangerous and both of them are brutal and savage and ferocious and beast-like in their nature. Aren't you glad as a Christian that we don't have reason to fear these men? You know, I am. I am absolutely. You know, when I when I first got saved in the seventies, the the whole thing of the end times was raging. It was it was embedded in the Jesus movement. You know, and of course, some point back then and say, "See, they said that back in the seventies." And how many years later are we? And it hasn't happened. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, it might have died off for a little while, but as we look at the world today, we're closer now to it than we were in the 70s, and we're seeing things now that we didn't see in the 70s. We're on a progression towards this end. There's no doubt about that. When that comes, that's up to the Lord. But we're in a clear path of progression towards this end of these things that we're studying. But I have to tell you, when I first heard these things, you know, as a young Christian, I had to have people remind me that I'm in Christ, and I had nothing to fear from this. Because these are scary figures. So you can imagine, you know, uh, I'm not trying to play on the sense that we don't have to fear them because we won't be here. Uh, that, that's certainly true for us. We won't be. But, but, but I mean that in the sense that in Christ, there's nothing and there's no one, not even the spirit of these guys, that we need to be fearful of. We don't even need to be fearful of their spirit because in Christ, we're covered and we're protected from the danger that anyone, whether it be them or anyone, poses to the most important aspect of our lives in Christ. I'm saying that because people can and people do pose physical dangers to us, right? They can and often do, you know, hurt people. He hurt Christians, and they can be fearful. We can be fearful in that sense, but, but what I'm saying is that we need not fear their ability to touch us where it matters most. And you know what that is? That inner part, that soul. They can't touch our souls. This is what the book of Hebrews is talking about. At least if we're in Christ, they can't, because what it says in Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 5, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Think about that. 
What can man do to me? Now, clearly, the writer of Hebrews understood. He lived in a time when Christians were being slaughtered physically for their faith. So he understood that evil people can do evil things to men and women physically. They can wreak all sorts of destruction. They can even kill the body. But what Hebrews, the writer to Hebrews is saying is that the one thing that men cannot do is that they cannot harm or kill the soul. They can't do it, no matter how hard they might try, at least not if a person's in Christ. They can't. Because if you're in Christ, your soul is eternally secure and protected. It's eternally secure and protected. When it comes to your soul, if you're in Christ, God will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. Not that he will leave you or forsake you in a physical sense in this life, but it's your soul that he's ultimately concerned with. And it's your soul that he ultimately promises to protect. That's why Jesus made the point in Matthew 10, verse 28. Matthew 10, verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, you and I as human beings, we tend to relate to things in human terms, in the physical terms, right? That's how we think. And we think about the physical impacts other people and, and things in this world can have upon us. Persecution. Who's praying for that, you know? Blessed are you when they persecute you, when they revile you in my name. I don't know any of us that go home and every night and say, Lord, just please let me be persecuted and reviled for your namesake. We just don't do it. It's a fearful thing to us. It's an awful thing in our minds. To be killed for my faith, perish the thought. Perish the thought. That's for somebody else in some other part of the world, but not for me. But Jesus says, as terrible as these things might seem to us, and as terrible as they might be, If they were to happen to us, there's something far worse to be fearful of. And that one thing doesn't come at the hands of any person, not at the hands of any man or woman in this physical world. The greater danger, the thing to be feared most is the threat that is posed to your soul. The threat that's posed to your soul. And no man nor anything else in this world can touch your soul. Only God can do that. Only God can. And that's why in a restatement of the same point in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said this, Luke 12, verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Fear him. Jesus is saying that there's a fate much worse than physical death. A fate much worse than that which even the most evil men can bring to our lives. And it's only God that can inflict that fate upon anyone's soul. And as such, it's him, that that mankind that you and I need to fear most in that regard. Not some evil or satanically empowered man or angels. Satan can reap your soul, sure. But he can only do it if you've chosen to reject the salvation that God has offered to you that would keep your soul from being reaped for destruction like that. So you see, if you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear, but, but if you're not in Christ, you have a lot to fear because God, in the end, he'll turn your soul over to hell itself. I know it's not a popular term today in Christianity, but it's a reality of the scriptures. And believe me when I say this, hell is a far worse fate than any kind of suffering and death that you can experience in the physical realm of this life. Scripture tells us that hell is a place of suffering and torment that never ends. It's eternal. 
It's eternal. Hell is the place where Jesus said that the flames burn continually and where the lost die, an eternal death. It's not like you go there, you burn up, and you are no more. It is an eternal suffering. It is an eternal death. It is an eternal place of dying, yet never reaching death itself. Hell isn't some mythological place as some people would have have us believe today, but it's a very real place, and it's a place where men and women who reject Christ's offer of redemption find themselves one day, regardless of how good a life they may have lived in in this world. And this is what Jesus so clearly warns us to be fearful of, not fearful of men, but fearful of God who can cast our souls into this awful place. I am always troubled I'm just telling you, I'm always troubled when I am with people who I know do not know the Lord. They make no bones about the fact they don't know the Lord. And then they're talking about some dear relative of theirs, their children or their mom or whatever. And their, their mom's clearly suffering or whoever it is is clearly suffering. And they make this statement. And you've all heard it. I'm just praying that they would die because it's, it'll be better than what they're going through. Really? Really? Where are you making that up from? What theology have you created for yourself that you believe that to be the case? And yet the answer is so simple. It's not complicated. It's not hard. It's so simple. The good news is that hell was never intended by God to be a place for human beings. I've told you that before. It never was intended that way. In fact, the Bible clearly tells us in Matthew 25 and verse 41 that hell is a place that's primarily prepared for who? Satan and his angels. Satan and his angels. It's only been expanded to include man because man refused to yield to God's offer of grace and salvation. It's the only reason. But God promises that if you fear him and yield to his full, you know, yield to his his offer of grace and salvation through Jesus Christ, you'll no longer need to fear this place. You don't need to fear that your soul will be lost. You don't need to fear that God will keep your soul and he'll keep you from a faith that's worse than death. And that's the promise he's made to us in Scripture. It's a promise of eternal security if we're in Christ. So for this reason, no matter how bad things get under these beasts in this day, those in Christ, though they might suffer greatly at his hands, they really have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Even those who will live in that day who'll be facing the wrath of this guy if they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, even though many of them might still face suffering and death at his hands, They still won't need to fear because in the end, that part of their lives that matters most, that part of our lives that matters most, is eternally protected and it's secured by God himself. Promise given in Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6 will be true to them in that day as it is true for us today. Hebrews 13 verse 5, for he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear What can man do to me? We should remind ourselves of that on a daily basis, shouldn't we? We turn on the news and we hear the stories of what people are doing to people. I will not fear because what will man do to me? What can he do to me? But look on what John tells us next about this second beast that he sees coming. Look at the latter part of this verse. He says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. John now sees and describes three unique things about this second beast, three things that that are really telltale of who he is. John says that he has the appearance of a lamb and he speaks like a dragon 
And he also has two horns. Those are the three things. So first of all, his lamb-like appearance seems to indicate two things in itself. First of all, the lamb-like appearance seems to indicate that his outward appearance is one of innocence and purity, as these are qualities that a lamb depicts, right? The little lambies in the field, nobody sees them with fangs. It's dangerous, right? We see a lamb, what do we want to do? I want to pet the little lamb, you know? Innocent, pure, harmless, not going to hurt you. In other words, on the surface or at first glance, this guy, this beast, when he rises, he won't give the appearance of evil and danger. He won't. But in fact, he'll seem to be almost the opposite. The opposite. It'll seem to be the essence of purity and, and innocence in, in who he is and in about what he is and about what he's doing. But secondly, in that lamb-like appearance is also the idea that, that his outward appearance also seems to connect him with some form of spirituality, some form of spirituality, maybe even in some way to Jesus and to the things about Jesus himself. I say this because the lamb is often used in Scripture to symbolically de- depict spirituality, right? And, and Jesus is the epitome of a lamb, right? Because he is what? The lamb of God, That's how he's presented in scripture. But this man won't be pure and he won't be innocent and he won't be spiritual as he outwardly appears to be, at least not in the truest sense of the meaning. And even though he might appear to be connected to and representing Jesus in some way, he's not Jesus and he most certainly is not representing Jesus. And how do we know this? Because of the second thing that John notes about him in that verse, the second characteristic. What does he do? He speaks like a dragon. He speaks like a dragon. The dragon we already know in this book is is symbolic depiction of who? Satan, right? Satan. So putting all of this together, what John is seeing and communicating to us is that this other beast, when he comes, he's going to give the outward appearance of a lamb, pure, innocent, spiritual, connected maybe in some ways to Jesus, but he'll in fact be reflecting and speaking the things the dragon reflects and speaks. Like the first beast, he'll speak these things because ultimately he'll be empowered by the same source, the dragon, by Satan himself. So who and what is this individual? I believe, and most Bible scholars agree, this is none other than a person that you've heard through, referred to as the false prophet. That we're, that, that's who we're being introduced to here. And although that specific title isn't applied to him in this passage, it will later be applied to him when we get to Revelation 16 and then again in Revelation 19 and again in Revelation 20, that name will be applied. But we're still being introduced to him descriptionally here. And as we're going to see in a moment, the, the false prophets... That fits the description of this guy because when he comes, he'll be coming, giving the appearance of innocence and purity and spirituality. In fact, when he first appears on the world stage, he'll likely even come proclaiming himself to be a servant of Christ in some form. But in the end, he'll prove to be nothing more than a false prophet who who won't be pointing men and women to Jesus Christ, but pointing them to Antichrist. Instead, he'll be the fulfillment. He'll be the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 and verse 11 when he said, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. He'll be the epitome of that. You see, Jesus predicted that false prophets would come on the scene over the years and how true his words have been as our world has been and continues to be filled with all kinds of false prophets today. Men and women who come with the appearance of spirituality and claiming to represent God and, and his Christ, but who in the end have, have they've, they're nothing more than false prophets, false representatives of the true and living Christ. How sad the trail of destruction that they've left in their wake. I mean, think about the destruction, the things they've done. Instead of setting captives free like Jesus did, they're bringing people into bondage. 
instead of giving sight to the blind, they're causing blindness through the things that they're doing. Guys like Joseph Smith, right? Founder of the Mormon church. Uh, Charles Taz Russell, founder of the Jehovah Witnesses. Jim Jones, you all know him, right? Let's all drink the Kool-Aid, right? Jim Jones, founder of the People's Temple. And then David Koresh, the self-proclaimed Messiah and leader of the Branch Davidians and a host of others. They're just too numerous to name. All of them false messiahs coming with the appearance of spirituality, but in actuality speaking the message of the dragon, the message of Satan himself. But when this day comes, when this day that we're looking at here comes, this individual who John is now seeing and describing to us in this verse, he'll be the ultimate culmination of all of these false prophets of all times. Just like Antichrist will be the ultimate fulfillment of all the false messiahs who've come onto the world stage over history. But make no mistake about it. Like the ultimate Antichrist, this second beast, this false prophet, he's going to be a real person who will do some very real and very terrible things during this dark period of time in history. He'll be a spiritual leader of sorts, someone who people in that day, they're going to look up to for spiritual guidance and, and direction, and they're going to trust his word. This is going to be a guy who's going to command their respect in a spiritual sense because of the position he holds, someone who will seem to come pointing them in the right direction spiritually, but in reality, he's not doing any of these things, none of these things. But what about the third characteristic that John gives to us here, the two horns? The two horns. A lot of speculation in Christian circles as to what the two horns represent, but we know that the horn in Scripture represents power and authority. We've seen that already in our discussion here. We find it throughout the Old Testament. It's a description of power and authority. And, and because of that, a, a, a lot of people reasonably believe that the horns represent two spheres of influence from which this prophet will emerge and derive his authority and his power, the political and the religious that he'll be a combination of both. He'll be representing himself in a political sense, but also in a religious sense, that he'll be emerging of these two things in the positions that he holds and in the role that he's going to play. I don't know if that's true or not. It makes a lot of sense. This is not clear, but it does seem to fit with everything else we're going to see pointing about this guy, things that John will describe to him about us. But no matter what, and one thing is clear, regardless of his appearance and his popularity, he will be a false prophet. He'll be the master false prophet. And John's going to go on in the rest of this chapter, and he's going to lay out for us more about this guy. So I just whet your appetite with this this week. We'll get back into that next week. We're going to deal with him. We're going to look at him more fully. We're going to see his role to Antichrist. And then we're going to get into one that everybody loves to talk about. We're going to talk about, well, what's the 666, right? Because that comes up in this chapter as well before we close it out. Then I got some thoughts on it for you, okay? We're going to talk about the kooky stuff that's out there. Okay, and we're going to talk realistically about what the scriptures seem to be implying by that, what that's really about, you know, what it's indicating. And so we'll get back to all that, come back out and we'll do that. But again, I just want to say to you guys this morning, aren't you glad that we're not going to live in this day? Aren't you glad? But you know what? I'm not going to minimize the time in which we live because the spirit of Antichrist is on the move in our world today. And there are lots of false prophets out there, right? Lots of false prophets. And sadly, God's people in a lot of ways just lack that discernment today. They're getting drawn into things. It's just so clearly antichrist. It's so clearly false and yet drawn into it. And I still come back to this very thing and say, the reason for that is because they don't know what God's word says. They know a piece here and they know a piece there and they know a little tidbit there and here, but their life is not founded upon this. And we're going to talk more about that next time we look at the false prophet because he comes doing all kinds of miraculous things that mesmerizes the world too. 
And you know what? It's easy to be mesmerized by the miraculous. But if you don't know the word of God, you don't know whether the miraculous is really coming from God or it's coming from Satan. You don't know which. You know, you don't know which. I believe in miracles. I believe God still works miracles. I believe he does healings. I still believe he distributes the gifts of the spirit. I believe he does all these things. But if you don't know the word of God, you can get drawn off in all kinds of spiritual practices where you will attribute things to God that are nothing more than false things. We live in a time when we need discernment, so I don't want to underplay the time in which we live too. But I also want to leave you with this today. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of the things you're seeing in our world. Don't be afraid of the things that could potentially come even against you as a believer. Let's not be afraid of those things because the one thing that matters most, the one thing that we need secured, has been secured. And that's our souls. What can men do to us? What can they do to us? That's a statement I think we need to think hard about because there may come a day before Jesus comes where we're going to have to take our stand on that. What can men do to me? Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.